Hi, everyone. Welcome to Behind the Numbers. This is the show where we dig deeper to understand what matters most in business. I'm Dave Bookbinder, best-selling author and senior director at CFGI, where I help my clients in the valuation of their businesses and their intangible assets. Today, we're going to be talking about business law and taxation. And I've got a great guest here with me today, Christopher Scott, who's a partner at the law firm of Claire Harrison. Chris, welcome to Behind the Numbers. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. No, it's a pleasure to have you. Tell the audience a little bit about who you are and a little bit about Claire Harrison, then we'll jump in. Sure. Well, I'm a tax lawyer. I graduated from the University of Virginia's Law School and from the Master of Laws and Taxation program at NYU. I'm a partner at Claire Harrison. Claire Harrison is a full-service commercial law firm. Means that we do from soup to nuts any kind of business transaction you might have, and we also do commercial litigation. So you're involved in the transaction side, right? Correct. Taxation and transaction. So you need to understand not just the, the tax component, which is your area of specialization, but you also need to understand what we'll call the business imperatives. Oh, yeah, definitely. In order to understand how taxes work, you have to understand the underlying transaction, particularly what's motivating people. Why are they doing this? You know, what, what is the goal? In fact, the first thing I always ask somebody is in a world without taxes, what is it that you would want to do? So you get that basic goal in mind, and then we start to think about how we're going to get there in a tax-efficient way. We're all going to just imagine that for a second, a world without taxes. We're going to let, <laughs> let that marinate for just yes. a moment. Um, okay, back to reality. Yes. <laughs> so in, in the world of taxes, though, th there's mm -hmm. more than just what everybody thinks about as, as income tax. That's right. Uh, would it be helpful for the audience to understand just some of the other areas of taxation that come into your day-to-day? -day? Sure. Uh, the most common taxes that I deal with are uh, real estate transfer taxes when somebody is selling a piece of commercial real estate. Uh, Sales and use tax comes up a lot. In the, commercial, in the commercial realm, sales and use tax can often be a very big deal. You can imagine how much sales and use tax can be triggered when you go to buy something like an airliner, for example. So there's planning there. And then there are a lot of miscellaneous excise taxes that come up, uh, various things. For example, if somebody's running a casino, there's a wagering tax that you have to you have to be aware of and structured with. Okay, uh, good overview. We'll come back to a couple of those as we talk about some of the uh, the particular verticals and where they're relevant. But let, let's mm -hmm. let's stay in the realm of mergers and acquisitions at this point. Okay. So as you know, you know, in my world, I play in mergers and acquisitions from the valuation right. perspective and the technical accounting side. And um, I'm not a tax expert by any stretch. I don't play yeah. one on TV. Right. Uh, so in my world, from an M&A transaction at a very high level, you know, it's a stock deal or it's an asset deal. Mm -hmm. That that's really what, what wags the dog right. from a taxation standpoint. Talk a little bit more about your world and your view and what, what you're seeing on the taxation side and what's the impact on transactions. Well, in the M&A world, if you have a C corporation, the odds are that you are going to do a stock deal because more times than not, if you tried to do an asset deal and then you were going to liquidate the corporation shortly thereafter and distribute the sales proceeds out, people could be looking at a tax well over 50% of the gross. And that can end up just being something that will cause it to be a no-go. So then we are talking about doing some kind of tax-free reorganization where there 
the consideration for acquiring the business will usually take will usually come in the form of equity of some kind, usually stock of the acquirer. Okay. So when when you're brought in, let me let me ask, when are you brought into a transaction process? Usually at the front end. Typically a tax lawyer will come in, take a look, talk to people, figure out what it is that they're trying to achieve, and then put together a deal structure and then in consultation with the corporate lawyers start to put it together. I find that if I'm busy, usually my corporate group is busy about a month later. Gotcha. Talk a little bit about kind of the mindset that gets involved in the transaction because I know when when business parties get together and they decide they want to get something done and they essentially hand it to the attorneys to Mm -hmm. paper the documents. Mm -hmm. What happens from the tax lens? Well, often we will do some more dickering. You know, the business people probably have come close to where the final agreement will be. When I'm coming in, it's usually in consultation with some corporate attorneys, and we're going to flesh out the deal a little more. We're going to add some fine-tuning, probably set the timing of it. For example, the end of the year is a particularly good time to do a merger or an acquisition because the employer's half of Social Security tax um, has to be paid a second time if you have two employers. So if you don't do an M&A, if you don't time it right, you can end up paying up to one and a half times as much Social Security tax regarding a particular employee for a year. And you know, it's just one of these little things that that we try to fine tune to help people so they don't have that happen. Yes, yeah, so this is why we're all busy heading into 1231, huh? That's right. <laughs> this is the busiest time of the year for me. Yeah, understood. Talk a little bit about how private equity thinks about taxes in M&A. Uh, your typical private equity firm is usually it's usually organized as some kind of an investment partnership and they, I, th- I imagine that what you're referring to is either an angel fund or a vulture fund. An angel fund being a fund that funds startup businesses in hopes that they will grow at an exponential rate and make a huge amount of capital gain for the fund. That, that, that's, yeah, that's like part of happy- it. Yeah, and it, could, it could be just traditional private equity that's kind of in the growth uh, investment stage past right. angel or venture. Right. Okay. Well, for, for firms like that, what they're looking to do typically is they want to buy stock in a C-Corp. And they're not super concerned about the, corporate, the, the corporation paying a corporate level of income tax and then having a second dividends tax. Instead, what they're hoping is that the value of the business will go up, you know, like I said, exponentially, sure. and then they'll recognize a large amount of capital gain. So those kinds of funds are usually looking to hold their stock for, you know, I'd say their target is usually around three years. And that kind of fund, you know, that, that kind of fund actually has some, some tax considerations it needs to think about now because just buying and investing in stock is not considered a trader business for income tax purposes. And the 2017 Tax Act has made 
deducting expenses associated with a profit-making activity that doesn't rise to the level of a trade or business, far more difficult for individual investors. And typically these funds, the investors are either like the Harvard uh, Endowment, some, some kind of charitable organization, or I should say tax-exempt or, or individuals. And for your individual investors, this is a big deal that about the non-deductibility of the expenses for that kind of fund. Yeah, Christopher, the folks who are watching and listening and they want to learn more about you or how they can contact you, what's the best way to do that? Well, I'm at the Philadelphia office of Claire Harrison. My office phone number is 215-569-4928. I'm always happy to talk about a transaction just kind of on background, give a little bit of free advice when it comes up. My email address is cscott at claire, K-L-E-H-R dot com. Great. And since you uh, mentioned that you're always happy to give some free advice, I'm going to ask you to do that right now. Uh, a lot of the folks who watch and listen are folks in the C-suite, uh, CFOs mm -hmm. in particular. Right. Uh, and the role of the CFO continues to evolve, and many mm -hmm. CFOs are involved in M&A, and many of them are getting involved for the very first time. So right. based on your experience, what advice can you offer to the CFOs who are listening out there who maybe have not done a transaction or only done one or two? Where, where are deals going wrong? What can they do to be better prepared as they walk into these transaction situations? Well, the best thing I can say for a closely held business is do your best not to organize it as a C corporation if you can. Because once you are a C corporation, you are limiting the universe of your likely buyers to somebody who can pay you in stock. You, otherwise, the tax consequences are likely to just be too large, and it, it will be so much to overcome that's likely to, to defeat the deal. Whereas if you keep your business in a limited liability company that is taxed as a partnership, these asset sales you know, they, they, more times than not, that's how that a transaction will be structured. And the income tax consequences of it are actually pretty favorable. You get a lot of capital gain. You will have some ordinary income, but it will, the, the tax consequences will not end up derailing the deal like a, an asset sale from a C Corp would. Okay. We only have probably 90 seconds or two minutes maybe to go here in this segment, but I just wanted to mm -hmm. ask you to talk about something that you had mentioned to me before we went on, and that was when you talk about minimizing taxes over the life of an entity. Right. What, what does that mean? It means being tax efficient and not engaging in a gimmick of some kind. For example, a lot of, uh, a lot of people who own uh, Hardee's franchises have organized their businesses so that it's a C corporation that has a tax year that ends either in January or February of each year. And then they, what they try to do is pay out dividends after the end of the, ta the tax year to themselves so that the income won't be reportable in their, on their individual return until the following year. And so they're able to defer tax in year one into year two. Hmm. The problem is, is that eventually that's going to end and you're going to end up having a lot of income bunched into one year. Um, there are lots of other 
there are lots of other little gimmicks like that. And what, one of the things that I do, I, I try to stay away from those because I don't want to create a situation where someone has to have a tax lawyer on their shoulder telling them what to do. I try to come up with a plan that's very durable and that even if my client makes mistakes along the way, they won't be catastrophic. Yeah, so one of the big takeaways that I just heard there, if I'm going to parse that, is that when you can think you're being strategic, but you may you may be actually being naive in the way you're approaching this, and as you refer to it, gimmicky. Right. Gotcha. I think that's a good spot for us to take our first commercial break here. So, Chris, you stay put. We're going to take a break here on Behind the Numbers, and we'll be right back after we pay a few bills. produce and grocery items all from the finest purveyors we're steadily market fresh from our family to yours rvn tv is a platform for people of any industry to share their story over 285,000 viewers are tuning in to rvn tv shows monthly we guarantee a great experience that you'll be sharing with everyone you know while increasing your personal and company's brand awareness but what is your brand According to Forbes, it's a combination of your logo, your product, your design and feel, and your personality. Did you know that aside from being a guest, we offer even more opportunity to boost your brand? Adding your company logo and website on screen during your interview will allow viewers to recognize your brand instantly. Incorporating images and video clips is another great way to showcase your product during your live segment. Let viewers see how good you really are. And most importantly, there's you and your interview. For less than the cost of a newspaper, direct mail, or a magazine ad, you can leave our studio and within 48 hours have a permanent digital copy of your live segment to link to your social media, embed into your company website, or use in email marketing. Investing in your brand is so very important, and we can't wait to have you as a guest. Shelter dogs aren't broken. They've simply experienced more life. If they were human, we would call them wise. They would be the ones with tales to tell and stories to write. The ones dealt a bad hand who responded with courage. Do not pity a shelter dog. Adopt one. Say we've got grit, and we'll take it as a comment. Welcome back to Behind the Numbers. I'm Dave Bookbinder, and today we're talking taxes and business law with Chris Scott, partner at Claire Harrison. Chris, in the first segment, we talked a lot about M&A. I want to move into uh, a couple of different silos now uh, into the second segment here. Let's talk about real estate. I know that's one of your areas of specialization. So how do people avoid taxes in real estate transactions? Well, there are two major tax considerations on any kind of commercial real estate deal. And by the way, when I say commercial real estate, I mean residential property, I mean shopping malls, retail, and I mean office buildings. So a lot of people, when they hear commercial, they just think office buildings or they just think about shopping centers. And I'm talking like anything that is real estate that you are not going to live in yourself. So with a commercial real estate deal, as I mentioned, there are two major taxes that, that somebody has to think about. Obviously, the first is income tax. Right. 
And for a commercial real estate deal, the entity of choice to put your real estate into is always going to be either a limited liability company taxable as a partnership or some kind of partnership. And I should say it's just a very strong general rule because sometimes it makes sense to put real estate into some kind of a business trust also. Generally, you do not want to put real estate into a corporation because the corporate tax, even with S-Corps, creates an inferior result to the tax consequences you get with partnerships. And the reason why is because debt that is borrowed by a partnership is apportioned among the partners and they get income tax basis for the borrowed money. Whereas with an S corporation, the corporation itself is considered the separate taxpayer and any basis that's generated by the corporation borrowing money is not allocated back to its shareholders. So consequently, the first step from an income tax standpoint, if you're buying real estate, is to always have it in an entity that's taxable as a partnership unless you have a compelling reason not to do it. And then the second tax that people are particularly concerned about are the real estate transfer taxes. And that's a very significant tax. You know, For example, if you're in Philadelphia, the real estate transfer tax is uh, it's about four and a quarter percent of the gross sales price. So mm. it's a bit like having a sales tax on the gross purchase price of your real estate. Just imagine how big of a tax that can be. Yeah. So when you talked about your definition of commercial real estate, we're talking about, we'll call it institutional investors, as well as perhaps yes. individuals who may have investment properties. And that That's right. ranges from different sizes. Gotcha. So why is the LLC such an important structure from a tax perspective? The nice thing about an LLC is how flexible it can be. It can be taxed as a partnership, it can be taxed as a corporation, and it can also just be disregarded as a separate taxpayer from its owner. If it's a wholly owned subsidiary or it's just owned by one person, you can have it just be considered like a separate pocketbook and have all of its income reported on its, its sole owner's return. Anyway, because of that flexibility, you're able to pick the income tax regime you want to fit in. And by doing that, you're able to, uh, you know, you're able to maximize your, your situation so that you will not get caught in some kind of a tax trap. The other great thing about limited liability companies is how flexible they are in crafting a deal. The LLCs, have the same kind of flexibility to them that partnerships have, where you can have preferred returns, you can have uh, a participating preferred return or a non-participating preferred return, you can separate management from the residual ownership of the company. You know, pretty much anything you want to do from a business standpoint, you can do it with an LLC. There won't be some state law doctrine that's preventing you from doing it. Much as the same much as the same is also true with partnerships, but partnerships do have the limitation that you got to have at least two owners. And because of that, you know, in a closely held situation where you want to have a wholly owned subsidiary, having some kind of a partnership does create some operational issues if you really just want one owner of the business. Gotcha. 
In real estate transactions, Chris, is there an ability to be, we'll call it creative, yes. in terms of structuring? Yes. Talk a little bit about that, if you would. Well, the creativity comes in typically when you're trying to figure out how to avoid paying a transfer tax or there's some other deal point that is a real limitation on the deal and you're trying to get around it and not have that end up sinking the deal. That's actually probably the stuff I enjoy the most is being able to put something together and create a situation where the people who are doing the deal are going to avoid some major problem in a very immediately measurable way. Like take for example a $10 million piece of real estate that's in that's in downtown in Center City, Philadelphia. You know, let's say you're buying it for $10 million. You know, the the real estate tax on that, real estate transfer tax on that, it's going to be about $425,000. And, you know, straight up, that's that's a pretty uh, big tax that somebody's going to be paying. Yeah. And usually, you know, the early years of a of a business, you're not making a lot of money. So, you know, having to come out of pocket for $425,000 right up front is a big deal. One thing you can do is instead of buying 100% of the real estate, you put it into a partnership and you buy 74% of the, of the, of the, uh, the entity. The seller keeps 26% and then you hang on to that that basic deal structure for six years. A lot of a lot of sellers do want to kind of keep a, keep their hand in the pie, so to, so to speak. So you know, often you're able to come up with something like that that is going to make everybody happy. Yeah, I imagine there's some significance to the 74. Is there like a 75 percent threshold or something? Yes, the Philadelphia City Real Estate Transfer Tax has a rule that if you buy 75% or more of a an entity that owns Philadelphia City real estate, you have to pay the real estate transfer tax on your purchase of the interest in the business. Gotcha. And that can vary from different jurisdictions as well. Yeah. In Pennsylvania, the rule is 90%, and then you only have to hold it for three years. Gotcha. For folks who want to learn more about you, how they can work with you, contact you, what's the best way to get a hold of Chris Scott? Best way to get in touch with me is just give me a call. My phone number is 215-569-4928. My email address is cscott at claire, K-L-E-H-R dot com. Chris, we only have a few minutes to go, maybe four or five minutes left in the, in the program. I want mm -hmm. to touch on another area that you work in, which is estate planning. Okay. Is it true that you got a law overturned in, in, yes. the, in the estate planning realm? That's true. I thought I read that. Tell me more. Tell the audience about that. Well, at the end of my time as an associate, I was a senior associate with this firm, and I was representing this guy who owned some real estate in Florida, and he was a Virginia resident. And Virginia was attempting to tax the value of his Florida real estate. And I was going through it because we were administering his estate. And I did some research and I realized that the Virginia estate tax was unconstitutional in this particular way. States do not have the power 
to tax real estate located in another state. And this hadn't been a problem as long as every state had an estate tax. But the way the Virginia estate tax was, was drafted, if you were a Virginia resident and you owned real estate in Florida, Virginia was taxing the value of that Florida real estate because Florida no longer had an estate tax. Anyway, I litigated the case down in a Virginia state court and we won. And that got the attention of the Virginia state legislature and they called me in as an expert witness. They put me up in Richmond. And while I was down there, the, uh, the legislative committee, you know, they, they kind of got tired of all the fine points. And they said, well, let's just repeal the Virginia state tax ourselves. <laughs> and so they did it. Nice. That's very impressive. <laughs> Not too many people can say that, I'm sure. Good for you. So just a, a little bit of time remaining in the program here. We, you shared something with me at the break when we were talking about the estate planning silo um, mm-hmm. about folks who don't necessarily know how wealthy they are. And my visceral reaction was, how could that be? Talk a little bit about that because there may be folks out there who don't realize how wealthy they may be. Well, the classic example of somebody who doesn't realize how wealthy he or she is is somebody who owns a big piece of real estate, typically a farm, somewhere on the edge of a city. And they bought that farm for a lot less money than it's worth today. And that farm could be developed into subdivisions in the foreseeable future. So, you know, this farm, maybe they bought it for let's say one and a half million dollars back in 1985. And nowadays it's worth, you know, 45, 50 million bucks. And people think, oh, well, the estate tax, you know, it's got a $15 million exemption now. So I don't really have a problem. Well, yes, you do if you own a $45 million farm. And people don't realize that they do own a $45 million farm because it's very likely that the, the farm is not assessed at anywhere near what its real fair market value is. And this particularly comes up where maybe the husband has died and he left everything to the wife and now the wife just owns it and she wasn't super aware of how the business was run and just how wealthy she really is. Wow, that, that's a great example, and it's something that I, frankly, had not thought of. Um, the ROI on tax planning sounds like it's pretty substantial. I try to make it that yeah. way. Yeah, Clearly it is. It's a topic that people don't typically like to talk about. It's uncomfortable, but uh, a lot of great insights from Chris Scott today. Chris, Thank you. thanks for joining us on Behind the Numbers. Uh, I'm Dave Bookbinder. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. If you've enjoyed the content, please hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're watching or listening on right now. And if you'd like to contact me, feel free to reach out. I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. We will see you next time on Behind the Numbers. Take care, everybody.